early adopters. It's kind of this woke phrase used out by uh, Silicon Valley, all the startups and things like that. Love to use the term early adopters. A visionary who has this idea without the capital to pull it off. They need early adopters to invest in. One of the greatest examples of this is Ed Catmull. He started a company with the vision for creating the very first fully digital animated film. It was impossible. They didn't even have computers. They didn't have the graphics. They didn't have the, the hardware or the software to run this idea. And he created the computer. He created and wrote the code and the program to bring numbers into the image of a hand. That was his first project, a hand. Steve Jobs saw that computer, saw that, um, saw that hand and was like, hmm, I'm interested in that. And he became an early adopter into this company. You and I know this company for its work and by its name, Pixar. Pixar wouldn't have existed without the generous and courageous investment of Steve Jobs, who looked at Ed Catmull and said, I believe in the vision that's between your ears and I believe we can bring it to life. He was an early adopter and they weathered crazy storms to get it to the point of releasing. And really in the end, it has transformed everything Absolutely everything, like Disney Animation Studios and Pixar, um, they're independent studios, but they're run by Ed Catmull and John Lasseter, the founders of Pixar. It's, it's created a new golden age of animation. It's really kind of cool. Without Steve Jobs and his brave, bold like work to do this and letting them create the computer, write the code and the software, we would never have I mean, Woody and Buzz, right? We wouldn't have these characters. When I say slink, you would think slinky, slinky, fun for girls and boys, which, by the way, wasn't. Um, but, you know, we think of, like, Slink the dog, you know, and we think of Rex with his short arms playing video games. We think of these things because an early adopter invested in a vision he couldn't see, but Ed Catmull could. And he believed that the vision between his ears could be put on a screen eventually, and it has been. It's really amazing. You and I are actually early adopters. Many of us are. I remember when I was given my first child, February 20th, 25th, huh, 22nd, don't watch, Josh. February 25th, 2002, Dr. Handed me Josh Folkers. And I was standing there holding him, and I thought to myself, you're gonna rule the whole world. You're the most perfect, wonderful. I, I had no evidence of that. He was in the middle of having like a diaper put on. Like th there was no proof. But I looked at him and I saw every possibility in the world. Why wouldn't he rule the whole world? He's perfect, right? And I've had that two more times since with my other children. And I know whether you're, you know, if you're a parent, you know that feeling. You're an early adopter, and you go through the hardship because you're investing in something for which there is a vision. And you believe in the vision God has for them and made them to fulfill. When we think of a God who has vision, you know, he has this vision and, the, and this desire for his creation and his world and those who are created in his image, which is you and I, anybody who, who's a human, is created in the image of God. When we realize that God has a vision and, and that he, he calls out to us to be early adopters of his plan for this world, people to invest with our lives into it, we began to feel the weight of glory. That's how C.S. Lewis would write it, the weight of the glory and the calling. And I wanna invite you to come with me to Psalm 46. 
Psalm 46, in the heart of the book of Psalms, which is in the heart, the very middle of Scripture, was written by King David in a city called Jerusalem. And I want you to join me as we read these words and let them sink in, and then we unpack the come and see moment of God in these Scriptures. God is our refuge and strength and ever-present help in times of trouble. Therefore, we will not fear if the earth gives way and the mountains fall into the heart of the sea, though its waters roar and foam and the mountains quake with their surging. There is a river whose streams make glad the city of God, the holy place where the Most High dwells. God is within her and she will not fall. God will help her at the break of day. Nations are in an uproar. Kingdoms fall. He lifts his voice, the earth melts. The Lord Almighty is with us. The God of Jacob is our fortress. Come and see what the Lord has done. The desolations he has brought on the earth. He makes wars to cease to the ends of the earth. He breaks the bow and shatters the spear. He burns the shield with fire. He says, be still and know that I am God. I will be exalted among the nations. I will be exalted in the earth. The Lord Almighty is with us. The God of Jacob is our fortress. So let's just unpack some of this. Let's look at this and wrestle with it. In this kind of oracle, in this kind of declaration of who God is, the psalmist first encourages, exhorts, cries out for us as the people of God to be wise and discerning by considering the works of God. Be wise and discerning by considering his handiwork. His handiwork gives us a glimpse of him in some way. And that's really interesting to me that, that we are called, exhorted to pay attention to his handiwork. The recitation of the mighty acts of God is this powerful thing that uh, it plants something deep in the memory of God's people that allows them to see the evidence, the actual factual evidence, oh, the actual factual, the factual evidence of his care his protection, and his providential rule in their life. Those who are wise enough to remember and look at the world around them have tokens, these little tokens of God's faithfulness towards his people. Those who are wise enough to remember and look at the world around them have tokens of God's faithfulness towards his people, his faithfulness in action for them, which I would say some of the, some of the tokens are this. For you and I to believe in the sovereignty of God based on some of the natural law that exists around us. Like two weeks ago, it was 90 degrees with 60% humidity. And none of us are surprised that like we're wearing flannels a couple weeks later and it cooled off. There's a tinge of color in the trees. And um, you know, you're like, man, I want an apple, right? It's just that kind of time of year. It's, I mean, it's really the best time of year. I mean, fall in Michigan, it is great. I love it. It cools off a little. The air is crisp. Nobody's shocked. Nobody's like, what's happening? Is the earth changing? We're like, no, it's fall. It's fall. It's this wonderful season, and God has set into motion the seasons. 
God has set into motion the fact that it will, the sun will come up well, tomorrow, daylight, hours of tomorrow will be two minutes shorter tomorrow than it was today. And none of us are like, the sun's going out. Nobody's doing that. Why? Because we believe that the rising of the sun and the setting of the same is ordained by a sovereign God who desires to give evidence to his own order, power, and majesty through the working and rhythms of creation. Believe in God's sovereignty on a created level. But also there's places where we can look for his hand and learn to identify moments where his sovereignty is working among us, where it's actually a a moment to track his evidence. Like this time of year, if you're a hunter, this this is one of those things. You start looking at tracks. That looks like a big footprint, you know, like a big hoove print right there. Like you, you begin tracking, and we can track the evidence of God when we are looking for his hand and paying attention to it moving. We can begin to track and learn the rhythm of some of his movements. Now, God does things out of the ordinary many times, but there is still a rhythm to his movements, a cadence to how God works, and we can track his evidence. Look at the life of people who were willfully apart from God and yet have submitted their life to the winsome call of grace in Jesus Christ, and their life is transformed into this lovely, kind, generous Christ-like existence where before they were an enemy of God and now they're a person who loves God deeply. I'll give my own life for that testimony. I was this. And God has worked a, a transformative work by his sovereign rule in my life and I can track the evidence. We can track the evidence of these things. And when we track the evidence, we are given these um these pillars that go underneath us and they pull us, they set us up above the chaos, the noise, and the madness of this life. And when chaos surrounds us, we, we often get caught in the noise. But these tokens, as it was said earlier, are actually like pillars and they hold us up above the chaos of this world. They encourage you in hard and uncertain times of a certain thing, and that certain thing is God. That certain thing is God. He gives us evidence of his certainty in the rising of the sun and the setting of the same, the rhythm and the seasons and all these things. But also, it, these, these pillars allow us to be up, remembering that it is God who is sovereign, not us. So we can take heart and we can be encouraged. And I'll tell you this, the church historically throughout its life, has given a testimony for 2,000 years. The church's testimony is that when chaos surrounds you, whether by natural disasters or by man-made chaos and harm, you can have a peace in him that transcends circumstances. You can have pillars that hold you up and give you a view and a glimpse of the Prince of Peace far more than the chaos of this world. And it's at that point that you become the evidence of God's work in this world. You are the evidence to those around you of the living water, the living water, Jesus Christ, that flows through you, that stabilizes you and refreshes the world around you. You become the very evidence of God. Join me back in verse four of Psalm 46. There is a river. 
that makes glad the city of God. There's a river whose streams make glad the city of God. So when we think about that phrase, we remember, come with me to this place. It's a place like, there's bucket lists and there's the very kind of thing. I want to see Jerusalem. Like, come with me. You Just join me on this. We land in like Tel Aviv, out on the Mediterranean plain. You land in Tel Aviv and you get in a bus and you go up the hills into the Judean foothills. And out there in the middle of the Judean foothills, there's this city rising up on a mountain. And on the top of the mountain is kind of like, think of the mountain, the rock at the top of the mountain. But then built out around it is this large area that would have been the Temple Mount. And there's the walls around it. It's the ancient city of Jerusalem. And they've built around the peak of a mountain, a city, a temple mount. And imagine with me standing in that place and hearing the words, there is a river that makes glad the city of God. And you're standing in Jerusalem that has no river. There's no river in Jerusalem. There's some springs. There's some pools. But there's no river flowing in the city of God. Remember last week we talked about Jesus sitting with that woman in Samaria at Sychar, and he's sitting there and he says, give me a drink. She says, you know, we don't talk. We're Samaritans and Jews. And Jesus said, actually, if you knew who was talking to you, you would have asked me for a drink because I, Jesus says, am living water. I am the living water. And there's this new idea that should emerge that we realize that verse 4 in Psalm 46 is a prophetic hearkening forward to the day when Jesus, the living water, would emanate out of the city of Jerusalem. He would go from the city of Jerusalem and his witnesses would go and he would be the stream of living water that would give life to the world and make glad the dwelling place of God. Make glad the dwelling place of God. So it begins to help us understand how God can go from this this scripture in Psalm 46 where it seems like the earth is raging and quaking and the mountains are falling into the sea and then there's this peaceful river that flows and its streams give peace to the city of God and we can look at it and see why God says in verse 10 of Psalm 46, be still and know that I am God. Be still and know that I am God. I was raised in Grand Junction, Colorado. We are called Grand Junction because the Gunnison River and the Colorado Grand Junk in that that valley, they come together and form the full Colorado River. The the Gunnison joins the Colorado. That's why we're Grand Junction, right? And, um, And I will tell you this. There is nothing better than sitting by a river. Oh, it's the best thing in the world, but like go to the Grand Canyon. Rivers change landscapes. Rivers are powerful bodies of water. And you, isn't it strange that you can go sit by a river and be perfectly at peace and still and just love the gurgling, rippling, roaring at times sounds of the water and yet you're next to something that is so transformative. It's carving landscapes. It's changing topographical things. It's moving the earth. It's bringing life into regions. It's this powerful reality. Have you ever sat 
in that stillness next to a river and been so at peace, maybe laying in a hammock just like, oh, or maybe, you know, sitting there in hunting season by a river and it's quietly meandering by and it's peaceful and it's quiet, yet that river is still moving. It's still transforming and you're at peace. You're not standing there going, change, everything's different. The river has moved the earth. No, it's peaceful. It's powerful because God is always on the move. And that river is the perfect image for our Lord Jesus Christ. Changes everything. The prophecy doesn't just extend to those words in verse 4 that say, um, there is a river whose streams make glad the city of God. It goes on to say, I will be exalted among the nations. I will be exalted in the earth. So let's look at a couple ways that that happened in the life of Jesus, the living water. Jesus is exalted among the nations. He is exalted among the nations, period, fact, truth. Jesus Christ in the very first century, so we could remove 1,900 years of history, right, just move it off and say, okay, in the first century, after Jesus died, about 30 AD, so 70 years, the gospel story, the story of Jesus Christ went to the far western edge of the Roman Empire, which was Britain, Great Britain, England at this point. That's the far western edge of the Roman Empire, the greatest empire ever to live, right? And it extended all the way east over Rome, over Jerusalem, and all the way east, even expanding past the borders of the Roman Empire into India, where the apostle Thomas took the church in the first century. Think of that. He has been exalted among the nations. The global church gives witness to Jesus Christ through, through conversions happening today, right now, in the dirt floors of a house in Uganda, to the great palaces across Europe, across America, all these different places, South America, all over. There is a global witness exalting the name of Jesus Christ in the nations. The nations are filled with people giving witness to Christ, and he is exalted among the nations. But Jesus is, is, is also exalted among and in the earth. And that's an interesting reality. But if you think about it, in the gospel stories, when Jesus is asleep on the boat and the boat's being swamped, and he stands up and he speaks to the wind and the wave, quiet, be still. And the wind and waves obey him. Can you imagine, like the disciples, of course, were like, ah, oh, but, but can you imagine? The wind and the waves recognize the voice of their creator. They recognize the source of their power, their authority, and their freedom to move. And they submit to the authority of Jesus Christ. When Jesus is coming in the week of his um, betrayal and execution, he comes into Jerusalem. And, and he comes in that day and people are throwing their cloaks down. And they're saying, Hosanna. It's called Palm Sunday. And they're saying, Hosanna. Hosanna. Here comes the king. And there's people saying, should they be saying that to you? And Jesus says, I'll tell you this, if they don't do it, the very rocks will cry out. The rocks will cry out. This is a big moment in history. And if, the, and if you who bear my image won't do it, the very earth will give glory back to me. I love that image. I love that image, but it's not just that image. Where it, that's a foretaste of what actually happens because the natural law of death 
None of us are getting off this planet alive. Our spirit goes to be with the Lord, but our physical body dies. And Jesus was crucified, and he died. His death, his natural body died, and it was put into the earth, into a tomb. And at God's command, he rose, and he conquered the natural law of nature and death. They obey him. He is God, and he is exalted in this world. They submit to his voice. The power and majesty of Jesus Christ speaking into creation, which is an echo to the original creation story when God spoke into the waters and they gave up life. He spoke into the soil and they gave up their abundance. When God called Jesus forth out of the tomb and he rose victorious on that Easter Sunday morning, the third day after his death, when that happened, Jesus was literally exalted in the earth like I love that. I love that. It's true. It's a prophecy written about him. But Jesus is also exalted in his disciples, the early adopters, the ones who took crazy leaps of faith to follow Jesus to India. I mean, I'd be a little nervous going to India right now just because I don't know anybody there. Can you imagine being Thomas? Like, you know, the guy, Thomas, doubting Thomas, who's like, I'm going to India, and off he goes. I don't think it even had a name in the Jewish context back then. They didn't know it was clear off past the Persian Empire. They didn't know where it was, but he went. He went without guaranteed outcomes because the gospel, the stream of living water, would flow out and make glad the dwelling place of God which tells me this, that in the disciples' act of faith in early adoption, they believed before everything was fully understood. They just believed in the man, Jesus Christ, in his life, his death, and his resurrection. And they showed the evidence by their lives. Their lives gave testimony to the faith which drove them. James would say faith without works is dead, and their faith is evidently very much alive. When nature moved and things were tough for the disciples, like I think of the Apostle Paul. Dude gets shipwrecked, lands on the little postage stamp island called Malta in the middle of the Mediterranean. So he's been shipwrecked. He was at sea for a day. He finally gets saved. They build a fire to keep warm, and a snake comes out, hits him, and he's like, oh, and everybody's like, oh, it's poisonous, you're gonna die. He's like, no, I'm not done. I'm not done proclaiming the gospel. And nature submitted to the call of God on Paul's life. When nature went crazy, he wasn't defined by nature. He was on some pillars that gave him a glimpse of the Prince of Peace, and he could see God above the chaos. The disciples trusted God's plan, and their faith says, come and see. Come and see the one who gives peace amid this chaos. Come and see the one who gives us hope in this madness. It goes on in, um, in Psalm 46. 
they believed these words. Psalm 46, verse one, God is our refuge and our strength and ever-present help in times of trouble. Therefore, we will not be afraid. Though the earth give way and the mountains fall into the heart of the sea, though its waters roar and they foam and the mountains quake with their surging, when rulers threatened, when rulers executed, when nations rose and fell, the disciples of Jesus Christ have been steadfast because they have a view of the Prince of Peace above the chaos. Doesn't mean the chaos doesn't hurt. Doesn't mean it doesn't harm. It means they have a view of the Prince of Peace. They are next to that powerful, ever-moving, life-giving river, and they are still. And they can be still amid the chaos, knowing it's God's work that's going on. God is bigger than human authority. Under constant threat, they lived a bold and what feels like recklessly abandoned life to the gospel, believing God is bigger than human authority. God is bigger than Caesar. God is bigger than empire. God is bigger than the body politic or its armies. God is bigger. Their faith said, come and see. Their faith in God pulled people's eyes up above the chaos and said, see him who gives peace amid the chaos. Their faith helped to pull people's eyes up above the tyranny and the demand of the chaos around them and said, look at Jesus Christ. And when they looked, it displayed, it put on display for people the very prince of peace. It goes on to say, nations are in an uproar. Kingdoms fall. He lifts his voice and the earth melts. The Lord Almighty is with us. The God of Jacob, our fortress. Come and see what the Lord has done. The desolations he has brought on the earth. He causes wars to cease to the ends of the earth. He breaks the bow, shatters the spear, and burns up the shields. They became rivers of living water. Jesus Christ is the headwaters, the place where, you know, like the Colorado River up in the Rockies has its headwaters, and it's actually a stream. It's not the mighty Colorado River. It's a stream. Its headwaters is a single place, and all that river begins there. And for us, Jesus is the headwaters, but we are the streams that make glad the dwelling place of God. A city is a dwelling place, and God said that river will make glad the city of God. Remember, Jerusalem has no river, so he's not talking about Jerusalem. He's talking about you. He's talking about me. He's talking about us being the place where the literal living water comes roaring out of. Our lives are the streams of living water into this world. The disciples became the river flowing out by simply saying, come and see. In Acts, the book of Acts, Acts about the early church, chapter one, verse eight, says, Jesus says to his disciples, you will receive power when my Holy Spirit comes upon you and then you will be my witnesses. Get this, in Jerusalem, the headwaters, remember God said, in the city of God, that's the context that Psalm 46 was written in. And do you see what Jesus says? First in Jerusalem, then in Judea, then in Samaria, and then to the ends of the earth. Why? Because God's dwelling place is the seven billion people living on the earth currently. 
And we are the literal streams called to go out and say, come and see the Prince of Peace above the chaos of this world, above pandemic, above election, above party, above everything else. Come and see the Prince of Peace. We are literally attached to the headwaters of Christ as a stream that has the opportunity to say, come and see the Prince of Peace and make glad the dwelling place of God. God desires to dwell in every single purpose. The disciples adopted a view, Jesus is Lord. And that view was a painful, sacrificial, subversive, and costly declaration. Because in Rome, Caesar was Lord. But to the disciples, to their own death, they said Jesus is Lord. They subverted the system for the glory of Jesus Christ. But here's the thing, it would change everything. Your life is called to declare Jesus is Lord. Lord above the chaos, the madness, and everything. Because, as it says in Philippians 2, 10, and 11, at his name, at the name of Jesus, every knee will bow, every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. So whether willingly or unwillingly, every knee will bow, every tongue will confess. I say this, church, let us be part of the great movement of the river of God going out into this world saying, come and see, because you're going to acknowledge him whether you like it or not. So acknowledge him by choice now and receive the gift of salvation. Jesus will be exalted in the very end. In the very end, he will be exalted. Every knee will bow. Every tongue will confess. But here's the opportunity. We can be the river now. We can be connected now to the purposes and plans of God for this world. Christ flowing through them. Invite them to come and see. Come and see. There is more than enough for them to come and see and drink their fill of that living water. You know, I think to myself of someone who goes with a cup and like fills it out of the river. They don't drink the water in their cup or their canteen and they're like, boy, I can't believe I drained the whole river. It's, it's really selfish of me. No, nobody's like, oh, if I fill my canteen, will the river die? No. He is the river. He's the headwaters. There's enough for all to come to come and drink deeply of that living water and get above the chaos and feel what it's like to fully be alive. Be a part of it now. Recognize the evidence of God in creation, in the order and the sovereign hand of God and give evidence out of your own life to the one, to the one who can save the soul. We're so afraid of people's opinion. But remember the words of Jesus, don't fear the one who can only kill the body. Fear the one who can kill the body and the soul. The disciples went out knowing that it was their solemn, joyful, sovereign, given job to tell the story of Jesus Christ, to be the literal streams of living water into a world that didn't know him. And the world did take and receive. In the end, everyone will know. Everyone will worship him. Everyone will submit. The the cool thing is we could be part of that chorus before it begins, right here, right now. We can take part in this amazing message of salvation today. Come and see life within the river. Come see life from inside. 
Come experience what it's like to be the river. To say, come and see the wild, untamed power of God, which doesn't always feel safe, but we can trust in this. He is good. He is for us, and he loves us. Come and see life from inside. From inside the river of God. Being part of life going out. Because as scripture says, if he is for us, then who can be against us? Lord Jesus Christ, we, your church, give ourselves to you and to this work. May you be glorified in your church, through your church, for the glory of your name. Not of us, but of you. You are our confession, and we confess that, Jesus, you are Lord. We confess that you, Jesus, are the living waters to which our lives are connected, and we ask that those living waters would flow out of us with purpose, with passion, and with an ever-faithful courage to adopt early in our life and give graciously of our life everything towards the ends of people knowing Jesus in order that they too would experience salvation. Come, Lord Jesus, strengthen your church and turn us loose on a world that is dry and thirsty for the word of God. In Jesus' name, amen. Remember in the beginning we talked about these early adopters, the courageous few who invest richly of themselves to, to make a vision come to life. There's the early adopter. You know, there's the vision, the early adopters, the early majority, the people who join in after the early adopters and they see, oh, wow, this is going. Then there's the late majority where people go, well, this looks like it's really taken off. I'm going to get on. And then there's the laggers, the ones who get in kind of because they have to. The ones who are like, I, I guess we'll do it this way now. It seems everything's changed. They do it because they have to. Let me just ask you a question. Name any, any of the investors after Steve Jobs. There were a lot. Pixar is a publicly traded company. But we don't know the names except for those crucial early adopters. You're invited here right into the early adoption of your life. I know the church is 2,000 years old, but here's the thing. How old are you? You're young. You have a chance to be an early adopter and then give the rest of yourself towards that end. Because in the end, even the laggards will bow the knee and speak out of their mouth that Jesus Christ is God and is Lord to the glory of God the Father. My desire is that we would adopt early into our life the ethic and the call of Scripture that was present in the Old Testament prophetically and the New Testament in reality to come and see, to invite people, come and see the one who's above the chaos, the one who can make us new. Adopt now into that and give your life in whole to it, to the glory of God the Father. Eventually, you will no matter what. But right now, the choice is actually in your hands. Grace, peace, courage, and strength as you adopt early into a faith that will transform everything. May the Lord bless you. May the Lord keep you. May the Lord cause his face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. May the Lord turn his face towards you and give you his peace. In the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, go in peace, my friends.